Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. On this week's pod, President Biden sets a deadline for HHS to develop a plan to take on drug prices. FDA is meeting with payers about aducanumab and other Alzheimer's monoclonal antibodies, BioCentury's analysis of deals and financings in Europe, and Brie Biosciences, a high-profile U.S.-China infectious disease company, goes public in Hong Kong. First up, earlier this month, President Biden released an executive order that seeks to promote competition among U.S. businesses and includes a near-term deadline for HHS to develop a plan to take on drug prices. Steve, what should we expect out of this initiative? It's hard to say. The executive order instructs HHS Secretary Becerra to submit a report to the administration within 45 days about a plan to continue the effort to combat excessive pricing of prescription drugs and enhance domestic pharmaceutical supply chains, to reduce the prices paid by the federal government for such drugs, and to address, quote, the recurrent problem of price gouging. So that gives HHS 45 days to come up with something. My guess is some of the things that they're going to come up with are going to come out of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI. They'll probably use their so-called project authority to come up with some kinds of drug pricing initiatives affecting Medicare. The executive order also calls for a plan within 45 days for FDA to facilitate importation of pharmaceuticals from Canada for states and tribes in the U.S. I don't think this is going to have a large-scale effect, either in terms of lowering costs for consumers or attenuating drug company profits. Trying to supply the U.S. from Canada, it's like filling a swimming pool through a straw, or maybe it's like trying to teach a pig to fly. It doesn't work, and it will irritate the pig. Among the many reasons it won't work is opposition from the Canadian government to having its drug supply suck dry. Having said that, I think it's possible that someone will find one or two drugs that can be cheaply imported in quantities that are both meaningful in the U.S. and don't hurt Canadian patients, at least for a while. Maybe it'll be an extremely high-priced drug for a very rare disease. Another possibility is a really old drug that's been sold in the U.S. for a long time and was never formally approved. Then a company got approved and FDA swept the unapproved versions off the market. Sometimes that happens, and then the manufacturer exploits the monopoly to make unjustified profits. So importation might be used in a special circumstance like that to get things back in balance. The other thing is the order asks the FTC to crack down on practices that limit competition from generic and biosimilar drugs. The FTC is an independent agency, so the president can't actually order it to do anything. In this case, Biden's pushing on an open door. The people he's appointed to the FTC have said that increasing competition, especially for drugs, is a high priority, so I'm sure they're going to do that. The order also calls for CMS to take action to facilitate biosimilars and generic purchasing. I'm sure that they'll do that. There's some other things that are in the works. The Biden administration has sent a most favored nation rule. That's the term that the Trump administration came up with for international reference pricing to OMB for review. The contents of the proposed rule haven't been revealed, but we'll probably be seeing those at some point. So, Steve, how much are we going to get the industry pushing back with the sky is falling and this is the end of innovation and new drugs? As you said, pushing on an open door. 
there's obviously a lot of desire and really both sides of the aisle to show that they are moving on drug pricing. What are the areas where you think we'll actually see something happen and how and where will the industry focus its efforts on preventing that? So you're opening a whole nother kettle of fish there when you're talking about Congress. The things that are in Biden's order are all things that the executive branch can do without Congress. And I think that he's bringing these things up for two reasons. One is to try to spur Congress to take action. And the other is to have something ready in his back pocket in case Congress doesn't get its act together to do something that he finds acceptable. I think that some of the things that Biden has proposed, many in the industry will support publicly or privately. Those are the kinds of things that go after violations of what BioCentury is called the social contract. You know, things that go after companies that try to evergreen drugs or that try to block biosimilar competition for inordinate periods of time or in other ways to abuse the patent system. I think those things will be supported by the industry. Well, we saw before with those executive orders that you can challenge them in the courts. Is that not something companies or the industry could do? Companies won't be able to challenge. They can't challenge the executive order because the executive order doesn't actually do anything. It instructs parts of the government to do things. But many of the things that the executive order instructs other parts of the government to do certainly can and will be challenged in court. I'm sure that anything having to do with drug importation will be challenged in court. And it's quite likely that whatever CMS comes up with, if it actually has any kind of a bite to it, will be challenged in the courts. The thing that the Biden administration has an advantage on is one they've seen didn't work from the Trump administration when the Trump administration tried to use executive orders. And two, they're starting at the very beginning of the administration, at the very beginning of the term. The Trump administration started to use executive power to try to reduce drug prices really only in their third year. And they didn't have time to get traction on anything. The drug companies were able to fight off the few things that got through the administrative processes in the courts. By starting it out really early like this, it's possible that things could actually work their way through and turn into real policies. Steve, what about NIH? Was anything included in the 72-point executive order? Yeah, that's really interesting. There was something that was slipped in there that I think a lot of people didn't notice because it actually wasn't in the portion of the executive order dealing with drug pricing. It was in a portion of the order dealing with NIST, what used to be called the Bureau of Standards when we were all younger. And what it did is it told NIST to rescind a proposed rule that the Trump administration had proposed that would have prevented NIH from using price as a reason for invoking its patent rights. So this could be a prelude to the Biden administration deciding that NIH will use its so-called margin rights to drugs that were developed based in part on NIH research. This would allow NIH to come in and say, We have intellectual property rights here. We're going to exercise them, and we're going to allow other companies to manufacture these drugs, for example, if prices are determined to be excessive. It could also be a signal that NIH is going to revive the reasonable pricing clauses on collaborative agreements with industry. 
How likely is it that NIH will ever use its marching rights, Steve? I thought that Francis Collins had never particularly embraced advocacy for this. Francis Collins has not embraced this. In fact, he's done everything he could to prevent it from happening. But I think there are two things to think about here. One is Francis Collins works for the president of the United States. If President Biden and the White House tell NIH that you're going to exercise your marching rights, NIH is going to exercise its marching rights. The other thing is that I'm not entirely sure that Francis Collins is going to be NIH director for very much longer. And it may be that whoever replaces him has a different view of this. All right, let's turn to our next topic. I think we need theme music at this point. This week in Abu Helm, Abu Kanamab, we had meetings at ICER and Duke Margolis seeking to answer critical questions about the new Biogen Alzheimer's drug, along with other potential treatments. Steve, what have you learned about these meetings? It's unusual for FDA to meet with payers, and that's what happened at the Duke Margolis meeting. It was a meeting that FDA asked Duke Margolis to organize and to bring payers, drug companies, physicians, and other stakeholders together in a private meeting to discuss monoclonal antibodies for Alzheimer's. Aducanumab, of course, was top of the agenda. And I think there are two things that came out of the meeting. One is an understanding of why did FDA do this? And a a discussion document that was distributed to participants in the meeting and was given to me makes the case that payers, drug companies, regulators, physicians, other stakeholders all need to work together to generate data about the safety and especially the efficacy of drugs that are believed to be effective to treat Alzheimer's. It makes the point that some of the best and the quickest data relating to the efficacy of Aduhelm, for example, may come from studies of other monoclonal antibodies that are underway now or starting now that will either confirm or refute the amyloid hypothesis, for example. I think there's also hope that all the angst about Aduhelm will also kickstart actions that will make it possible to collect the kinds of outcomes data that's really needed to understand whether that drug works and whether other drugs work and for whom, and to be able to integrate that data collection into routine clinical care. And if that could come out of this, it would be a tremendous benefit. The other thing that I've heard privately from people who attended the meeting is that, well, payers at the meeting said that their real concern was not the cost of Aduhelm so much as the principle of whether FDA should have approved it in the first place, whether there was enough evidence to support approval. In fact, it was really the opposite. I think that it's it's an axiom that that I've always had, that when people say that it's not the money, it's the principle of thing, it's the money. And that's what the payers were saying at the Duke-Margolis meeting. Basically, if this had been priced much, much lower, they would have swallowed their concerns about the efficacy and they would have just paid it. But they're really upset and they believe that they're being taken advantage of here. So Steve, last week we saw two clinics, Cleveland and Mount Sinai, say that they were not going to administer this drug, Aduhelm. They didn't prevent their doctors from doing that elsewhere. I think another two have since said the same thing. Is it a given that CMS covers this? 
what does the future really look like for this drug? Is there a scenario in which it bombs? So there is some precedent for FDA approving a product and there being a great deal of concern about the costs and then it kind of going away because physicians and patients were unenthusiastic about it, didn't believe that it had much efficacy. So that happened with Dentrion Corporation's Provenge. That was a cancer vaccine for prostate cancer. It was rejected by FDA the first time around, I think in 2007. FDA asked Dendrion to do another trial. Eventually, it came back to the FDA in 2010, and FDA approved it. There was a great deal of pressure. In the meantime, I was at a, a demonstration outside of FDA headquarters with people uh, yelling over bullhorns, saying that FDA uh, was murdering prostate cancer patients because uh, they were delaying the approval of, of Provenge. So eventually it got approved uh, and there was a consensus that it really didn't provide a great deal of benefit. It's still on the market. I think that it's used a little bit now, but the controversy withered because there really wasn't much demand for it. I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult, a great deal more difficult for Aduhelm. I think mm -hmm. that CMS isn't going to be able to completely deny coverage. It's more likely, I think, to do three things. First, it's going to delay. Second, it's going to limit the eligible population. And third, it's going to try to negotiate a lower price. On the delay side, I think the action to start with is going to be with the local max. These are entities that set payment policies at the local level. Ordinarily, if CMS is developing a national policy, which it's doing for Aduhelm, the max would cover a drug for everyone on the FDA label until the national policy is created. I'm hearing that this might not be the case for Aduhelm. The MACs may drag their feet saying that they're waiting for CMS headquarters to make a coverage policy. And this could delay access in some or maybe even all of the country for the Medicare population for you know, a year or more until FDA comes up with a national coverage so, policy. So you could see this drag out until the next products from Roche and Lilly actually you know, read out and make it maybe even to approval, where those companies believe their data are going to be more robust, but certainly it'll provide competition for Aduhelm. Yeah, I think that the Aduhelm rollout is going to be slow. I don't think it'll be totally nothing between now and when those drugs are ready for FDA review and potential approval. But I think that it's going to be slow. The rumors that I'm hearing are that those drugs are likely to be priced at a much lower level than Aduhelm, and that could set up a competitive environment, something like what happened with the PKS9 for cholesterol. And that's always the argument that is invoked in fact, as that's how it's supposed to work. Well, it's not supposed to work that the first drug that comes on the market sets a Isn't price it? that a lot of people think is outrageous, and then they make a windfall until other ones come onto the market. But that is how it's worked out in the past. I think overall, it's interesting. One way to look at this is that in a way that hasn't been done so explicitly in the past, FDA is basically saying this is an issue for the marketplace to work out. You know, FDA said, we're willing to accept a, a certain amount of uncertainty about the efficacy of Aduhelm, and um, it's up to the marketplace to determine whether they're comfortable with that uncertainty. and quite apart from anything FDA has to say about it, whether they're willing to pay the price that 
Biogen is asking for it. And it sounds like the marketplace is saying we're not actually 100% comfortable with this uncertainty. Well, based nobody's, on nobody's, yeah, nobody's comfortable with it. I think that some payers are going to feel that they don't have much choice and they're going to pay for it. They're going to put whatever restrictions they can in place. You're going to have uh, patients and caregivers who are going to say, look, we can't wait for other drugs to come onto the market that might be competitive and lower the price. For people who believe that Aduhelm actually is effective, they are going to make the argument that they've got a progressive disease, that the time that's lost waiting for other drugs to get onto the market, they're going to progress and they'll never get that function back that they've lost in that period of time. So it's going to be interesting. There's going to be you know, a push and pull here from the caregivers and the patients and the advocacy groups that are working on behalf of the patients on the one hand and payers and skeptics in the medical community on the other hand. We'll continue to watch this issue as it plays out. And we'll see about that theme music. Let's turn to Europe. Simone, we've just released our deep dive analysis of deals and financings in Europe. The report was prepared for our annual bioequity conference in the spring. We're now releasing it to all of our subscribers. What were some of the key trends your analysis identified, Simone? It is interesting that Europe is really strong on innovation. So I did two, actually, sorry, we had a whole team of people working on this. I I really have to (laughs) give credit. There's a lot that went into this. And we divided up into two things. We looked at financing and we looked at deals. I'm just going to focus on deals for a minute because one of the things that I thought was very interesting, we're really looking at out-licensing deals by European based biotech. So I'm not really talking about the pharma companies as out licenses. And one of the things that I thought was very interesting was there are a lot of innovative deals from biotechs with other biotechs. So in addition to biotechs licensing things to the farmers, they are marrying their technologies, one biotech with another, and coming up with a third one. And that seemed to be an emerging trend that I thought was very interesting. We see a lot of preclinical activity. So there were a lot of preclinical deals in the billion dollar range for total deal value. And another major theme among the deals was over half of the deals have the research component. And what that means is companies are spending a lot of time within the deal framework of doing research together. Many of those are discovery deals, but that even includes clinical and preclinical assets where they're doing research together. So deals these days are not that much about asset handoffs. Handoffs were only 20 of the 64 deals we looked at, simple handoffs. The others were either with a research component or with a co-development. And, you know, when I look at the financing, what we see for what we call the money magnets. These are the companies that have raised at least $50 million in venture IPO in the last uh, two, three years. Real heavy emphasis on platform companies. You know, there's always this thing about, are you a single asset company or are you a platform company? Your platform is in right now in Europe. I don't need to tell you that immuno-oncology is a big deal. A lot of financing for immuno-oncology companies 
But beyond that, there's a lot of innovation all over the place. We don't see their Europe becoming like pockets or there's sort of pockets of excellence for various things, but there's not huge areas of expertise where everybody's rushing to Europe, say, for cell and gene therapies or something like that's an expertise they want to build up. But at this point in the financing, we're not seeing Europe become the destination that it wants to be for cell and gene therapies or various other specific technologies. And coming up this fall, we'll have our China Healthcare Summit. We plan to do similar deep dives to prepare for that conference. And if you're looking for more information about the conference, you'll find it on our website, biocentry.com. Let's turn now to our deal in focus. Three years after its debut, China-U.S. infectious diseases company, Bree, has gone public in a $320 million IPO on the Hong Kong exchange. When the company launched, it seemed like an IPO was a matter of when, not if. The company debuted in 2018 with $260 million in committed capital, led by Arch, Six Dimensions, and Boyu Capital. At the helm, Zi Hong, a very well-known and well-respected infectious diseases expert. The company also launched with a series of high-profile partnerships. Among them, Veer Biotechnology, that's George Skangos' company, Wuxi Aptech, Ali Health, which is the healthcare arm of Alibaba Group. And among its board members and advisors, really a who's who, John Mariganore, the CEO of Alnylam, David Ho, scientific director and CEO of the Aaron Diamond AIDS Research Center, Thomas Daniel, President of Research and Early Development at Celgene, Chen Dong, Dean of the School of Medicine at Tsinghua University. I could go on. Now the company plans to deploy its funds from the IPO on executing on its pipeline. It has a dozen programs in the clinic in the U.S. and China. Nearly all are infectious diseases. It has two depression programs. Despite its ties to the U.S., Bree's investors preferred a Hong Kong listing to one on NASDAQ. There's a backdrop to this, though. The listing comes amid increased regulatory scrutiny of Chinese companies listing in the U.S., and we've seen 13 of the 16 Chinese companies to go public so far this year list in Hong Kong or Shanghai with the remaining three going out on NASDAQ. And this month, Beijing-based real-world data company LinkDoc Technology pulled its IPO plans for a listing on NASDAQ. And last week, we saw SIRNAomics, Inc., or is it Sirnaomics, Inc.? Not sure. I'll have to follow up on that one. Uh, Delaware Incorporated Company, headquarters in Gaithersburg, Maryland, they filed to go public in Hong Kong, revealing that last October, in order to prepare for the IPO, they became a holding company based in the Caymans. That is often a stepping stone for companies who want to list in Hong Kong to grease the wheels of the process. Jeff, you mentioned concerns 
about Chinese companies listing in the United States. But I think that that cuts both ways. And Bree has experienced this. It seems to me that the company was set up kind of to test the proposition that you could have a company with two feet, one foot in China, one foot in the United States. And when I spoke to Xi about this early in the COVID pandemic, his philosophy was basically that it's not a zero-sum game and Mm -hmm. that infectious diseases cut across borders and that everyone would be better off if we all work together. But then he ran into kind of a buzzsaw when Bree tried to get assistance from Operation Warp Speed mm-hmm. for its COVID therapeutics. Operation Warp Speed basically um, shut them out and said that the United States government was not going to support a company that had close ties to China. And in fact, Veer had some trouble early on because it had hired uh, Wuxi to, to help with some of its development work. Yeah. And uh, as you'll recall, Stephen, and you may have actually uh, coordinated this, uh, he wrote an op-ed for BioCentury laying out what he thought the world needed to do to combat the pandemic, and the word cooperation was all over that. And he was very diplomatic when we spoke. He certainly didn't bring any of that up, but I could sense that he was frustrated at the lack of cooperation of the world's governments in, in terms of battling the pandemic. And obviously a company here with a lot of promise. The pandemic had this company leapfrog from being a very early stage company with one with compounds in registrational studies. Uh, they'll be one to watch for sure. Well, that's all we have time for this week. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. We will catch you next week. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Simone.